This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. We're very fortunate today. We have Luke Hayes out of Nashville, Tennessee. He's with IPX 1031. And Luke, you're a specialist in real estate exchanges. So with that being said, welcome to the show and tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got here. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So kind of my background, I was born and raised in Birmingham, undergrad at Alabama. I hope that doesn't uh, scare away some of your listeners. Law school at Tulane. And then after law school, I joined IPX about two years ago. And so as an attorney in Tennessee, my sole role is basically 1031 exchanges. And the company I work for, IPX 1031, we act as a qualified intermediary. And I'm sure at this point, you have no idea what that is. And that's <laughs> most likely why I'm on here today is kind of to go over some of that terminology as well as the, the 1031 exchange as a whole. So I, I usually like to begin because I give a number of continuing education classes to agents, brokers, CPAs, real estate attorneys, because this is a small part of the code. And I'll, and I'll kind of address you know, the background of the 1031 exchange, why it was implemented, and obviously why I work with IPX. So the call goes something like this, Luke Hayes, IPX. Yes, yes, I want to do a 1055, right? If someone's in a rush, if they're in a hurry, they're going to get the name wrong. They're going to call it a 1055, a 1088. They're basically going to say, I don't want to pay any taxes. And I'll say, okay, well, where are we at in the real estate transaction? And they'll say, well, I closed last week. I have the funds. You know, what is my next step? (laughs) And unfortunately, bad news is coming at this point because I have to inform them that their next step is to contact their CPA or tax advisor. So really the number one thing in a 1031 is it has to be set up prior to the close. And you would think that would just be something that everyone would understand and kind of goes into a lot of what I do is more of a a teaching element. You know, uh, not a lot of people know about exchanges. They don't know, you know, when the rules apply. Maybe they have some of the rules right, but other rules incorrect. So, you know, my role is kind of a combination of an advisory role as well as you know, obviously a teaching role in setting up these exchanges. I think it's a really good point. So, you know, so many people, we all specialize, you know, and I think folks just don't know what they don't know. And, you know, in the 1031 space, it sounds pretty simple to say, well, yeah, consider doing a 1031. But anything past that, I think, even if they know that much, I think there's a real knowledge gap. I would agree. Particularly attorneys and CPAs, they just don't have time. You know, it's such a small part of the tax code that they don't have time to comb through it the way we do. You know, if I was an attorney, you know, in private practice, I I simply just wouldn't be able to do 1031s. I wouldn't be able to apply the bonding and insurance necessary to set up these exchanges. I wouldn't have the, the resources needed that IPX provides as a QI. So, we'll kind of address some things to look for in qualified intermediaries, but you do need a kind of a national presence in order to offer the clients, you know, the exchangers, the investors, low fees, as well as sufficient bonding and insurance. For the folks that might be going, what's a qualified intermediary? You've got the piece of real estate, the target piece of real estate intermediary in between, correct? Right, correct. So kind of begin with 1031s, you have to go way back to 1921. That's actually when it was created by the IRS. So we're coming up on 100 years of exchanges. And the basic idea is you have some real estate investors who might sit on their property because of the tax liability associated with the sale. And you have other people that are maybe waiting to to sell it in a new calendar year or maybe to leave it to their children or their heirs. So there's a big group of investors that are maybe sitting on their property. And the 1031 allows those people to take the plunge and sell their property and defer their taxes by buying another piece of property. So from the IRS's point of view, uh, this helps create 
real estate transactions. It's considered an economic stimulus. And really a, a very common question I get is, well, if I do a 1031, will I get audited? And I have to kind of go back and say, well, no, it's directly part of the tax code. You know, we're coming up on 100 years. It was reaffirmed in, in 2018, the necessity for it. So no, that's a common myth. But yes, going back to a qualified intermediary, you have to use a qualified intermediary to do a 1031 exchange. And you might find this funny, but the definition from the IRS is in order to be a qualified intermediary, you must not be disqualified. Are we ready to move on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can only use tall people. And if you're not tall, we can't use you. I like it. Yeah, yeah. And so in order to be disqualified, you basically cannot be an agent of the exchanger within the past 24 months, the past two years. And so the final question that needs to be asked is, well, who qualifies as an agent? Well, for an investor, basically their broker, their agent, their CPA, their attorney, you know, whoever they're going to use for the closing, if they're handling some of the legal docs associated with it, they're disqualified. But besides that, it really is kind of the wild, wild west. Someone mentioned that to me one time and it kind of stuck with me in terms of the lack of rules and regulations. You know, as long as you're not disqualified, you can act as a qualified intermediary, but you have to use a qualified intermediary uh, to handle a 1031. And that, that is exactly what IPX is. So IPX is a subsidiary of Fidelity National Financial, Fortune 300 company, you know, kind of based in Chicago with offices really across the United States. And our company, we specifically handle 1031 exchanges. So that's kind of the the bit of a background on what a qualified intermediary is. And you have, you know, if I'm in Colorado, you're in Tennessee, and if somebody's listening and they're from Wyoming, there are qualified intermediaries with your companies scattered throughout the United States, correct? Correct. Yeah, we have representatives across the U.S. You know, even in Hawaii, I'm waiting for that person to retire, and you may get <laughs> again. My region specifically is Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi. However, I can handle an exchange really anywhere in the U.S., and our okay. Southeast office can handle an exchange anywhere in the U.S. And that's where a 1031. You know, it's based in the U.S. You know, we're not trying to help other countries' economies. You know, I always joke. Unfortunately, you can't sell here in the U.S. and buy a chateau in Paris even though we wish probably we all could. But because this is an economic stimulus, you know, it's it's to help stimulate the U.S. economy, it it does need to be in the U.S. Another question I get is, well, if I use, you know, yourself, myself, and IPX, do I have to wait two years to use you again? No, that's not correct. You know, we're a third party to the real estate transaction. You know, I'm never going to be involved in offer, acceptance, contract negotiations, specific tax or legal advice, any of the closing documents. You know, our sole role is to advise on 1031 issues, to gather the documents for the exchange, to set up the exchange, and then to hold the proceeds. So we kind of separate ourselves in that way, thereby never disqualifying. So, you know, we could handle multiple exchanges from the same person. That's all you do. You're the 1031 wizard in Nashville. And that's right. About a few years ago, that kind of pretty much had the entire market. And he recently retired. And I kind of think that maybe is why I was brought in. They saw an opportunity. You know, the Southeast in particular is an area where a lot of out of state investors are going, particularly maybe from California, New York, Chicago, for a couple of reasons. You know, the first is well, in Tennessee, there's no state tax, which is obviously quite valuable. And Texas and Florida are, are other states without any state income. And, you know, so if someone's selling in California where they're having a 13.3% state tax, Tennessee looks pretty good in terms of maybe that's where I want to take my investment dollars and reinvest into real estate in Tennessee. I would say another reason is 
you know, people are looking for value buys and they're looking for properties that they think will grow in appreciation significantly over the years. We just released a newsletter that kind of went over the top 30 cities where people want to buy. And I was lucky enough to have about, I think, six or seven of those cities in my region. You know, four, I think, Tennessee and a couple in Alabama. And so, you know, Alabama, Tennessee, the Southeast in general is a major area, but 1031s are being done across the country. And my biggest obstacle, I think, is the lack of knowledge here in the Southeast. You know, in California, they know about 1031s. You know, for commercial real estate, it's done, you know, almost 80, 85% of the time. I would say in Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, it's probably less than a quarter of the time. And so, again, that kind of goes back to the educational rule. People don't know when their properties qualify. They don't know when to set it up, obviously. And that's kind of why I'm here. You know, I think about the ability for you to reach out to the individual person that's the real estate holder. There's just one of you. But, you know, I think about the folks that influence that, whether it's the business broker helping the business owner sell, whether it's the real estate crowd, whether it's the estate planning folks, you know, any of those those types of folks that have financial advisor types, you know, right. that maybe have the folks that they're trying to advise on how to take and structure what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I would say that from my experience, there's not very many guys that are in the wealth management space that are very much up to speed on 1031s either. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. And, you know, we can kind of go over the benefits really to, we can separate it out for the investor, for obviously, you know, the agent, the broker in terms of maybe marketing it out, pushing it out more, you know, CPAs, attorneys, and kind of go down the line. You know, obviously for the investor, the the biggest thing for a 1031 is you're not giving any money to the government when you sell your investment or business use property. So, Let's kind of begin with what qualifies for 1031s. And really, it's any type of real property with investment or business use intent. And so typically, there are a variety of things the IRS looks at, but typically, the necessary holding period for a piece of real estate would be a year and a day. That gets you in that long-term capital gains tax rate. And so types of properties that would qualify, it could be raw land, it could be farmland, Timberland, water rights, mineral rights, air rights, residential type investment properties like single family rentals, condos, apartments, multifamily, commercial, triple net lease, industrial, Delaware statutory trusts. At this point, I typically run out of breath. But what I'm trying to say is there's a portion of the code that a lot of people, perhaps maybe the number one misconception, it's the like kind. Basically, what the code says is that in order to defer your taxes, you need to buy a replacement property of like kind. And a lot of people think if I sell a commercial building, the only thing I can buy is commercial. Or if I sell a piece of raw land, the only thing I can buy is raw land. And it's really the exact opposite. Any type of real property, you can sell and buy any type of real property as long as you have the same investment or business use intent. So it's really the intent that matters. And that's kind of the first thing for the investor. They're not pigeonholed to a certain property. If you have listeners who own a small business, they can sell that business and maybe buy something completely separate. You know, they can, again, go through the list in terms, as long as it's real property, it can qualify from a 1031 perspective. So reasons people exchange, really a number of reasons. One, you know, generate cash flow. You know, you can sell something that's not producing any type of income, buy something that will produce income. Properties that are fully depreciated, you could sell those and maybe buy up in value. 
And again, a lot of our clients do buy up in value because they're not giving any money to the government. And so when you buy up in value, you may be able to take depreciation on that new property. I don't know if I'm, I'm kind of going off track here. But well, you know, is- maybe a scenario, like let's say I'm a business owner. I own the real estate in my business separate from my business, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested and I have a buyer for my business and you go, well, you know, if you think about the business, the guys buying the business may want to buy that building too. Mm-hmm. And you think about the business owner trying to fulfill his income requirements, you know, to retire, you know, and you go, well, do you want to take in 1031, that piece of real estate into another one that cash flows somewhere else and avoid that gains tax on just the real estate alone? Right, exactly. And, you know, a, a classic example would be maybe a doctor that's retiring. You know, he sells his practice, he sells the real estate. Obviously, he's not going to buy another doctor's office. I mean, he's, that's why he's retiring. And so, you know, that person, he can go out and buy a beach house and you know, rent it out. And after a, a two-year restrictive period, there are ways for people to buy their second home vacation home via 1031 exchanges. There are ways for people to buy their dream home via 1031 exchanges. So you're exactly right. You know, people that are tired of maybe property management, there are mechanisms for them to buy something, defer their taxes, and then buy something that that is not as heavy on the property management side. You know, triple net lease properties are a classic example of that. That's your CVS, your Walgreens. The Delaware Statutory Trust, I don't know if you're familiar with a REIT, a real estate investment trust, but basically a, a Delaware Statutory Trust or DST is is a way for someone to buy into a trust. And this trust can have a number of properties. So you have that automatic diversification and it's basically run by a major DST company, you know, a very large property owner. You get a monthly check in the mail based on the returns. And so that's completely management free. I think about it as we go through all, I think the listers probably going like, holy smokes, you know, there's a ton of things that can be done. The thing that strikes me about all this is as for a lot of these folks, they're building their team. You know, they've got their CPA, they've got their attorney, they have, you know, maybe they have the real estate agent, maybe they have a business broker. But what strikes me is they need to have a 1031 person on their team too. They could say, this is my goal. I want to do the following things. You know, it's kind of like saying, to go into the dock and go, it hurts right here, but I'd like an appendectomy. And you go, well, how do you know that's what your problem is? So for what I think for the listeners as they're going through going, there's a lot to know. There's a lot of permutations. My sense is that for them to reach out and bring you on or bring the 1031 folks on the team. So okay. you're there to take and offer alternatives. Certainly. And I think, you know, when I give classes, I think towards the end, I see in people's eyes the fear of maybe having a client wanting to do a 1031 and to try and kind of alleviate some of those fears, you know, really all we require and what we do is we advise. So, you know, if you're an agent or a broker or a CPA or an attorney, the only thing I would need would be your client's contact number. And then if they decide to do an exchange, the sign purchase contract and the title commitment. From an investor perspective, I just need time to speak with you in regards to does your property qualify? In every consultation I give, and I'm pretty sure this applies to everyone in my company, they're complimentary, meaning we don't charge unless the closing has happened. And so I don't want to you know, say for people, 
maybe to, to use and abuse, but really if they have questions about does their property qualify, does this qualify, I love taking those calls. You know, those are educational opportunities for that investor. And a lot of times, even if they're not able to maybe do an exchange with their current property, at least they're able to prepare for the future. And they know what to do in order to make that property qualify for a 1031. You know, the end goal with most people who are doing exchanges is to continually defer their taxes till eventually when they pass, they're going to leave these properties to their heirs. And when an heir receives a property, they get an appraisal done and they get a step up in basis. So an example is if I have a million dollar property with a hundred thousand dollar basis, basically 900,000 of taxable gain, and that property is now inherited and the appraised value is a million. Well, my basis is stepped up from a hundred thousand up to a million. And Bob, if I sold for a million, my basis is a million. How much do I pay in taxes? I think it's in the round numbers. <laughs> it's nothing, right? And for lack of a better term, we call that swap till you drop. So what our clients are trying to do is continually defer these taxes till eventually they'll go away via that step up in basis. And really, you can think of that as similar to the American dream or building generational wealth. You know, you're trying to leave your heirs in a better situation than you. A lot of people, you know, obviously have different ways to invest their money. But I think real estate is, you know, besides maybe the 2008 collapse, it's one of the safer options. And even if you're not strictly investing in real estate, you want to have diversification in your real estate portfolio or in your investment portfolio. And I think a lot of our clients who have these properties, you know, they're using 1031s again to diversify to make sure that if the market turns, you know, they're at least getting, you know, steady returns still probably not as high as, as it is right now. I, I would say right now is kind of top of the market in terms of what people are getting on, on returns and in investment in real estate. But it's that diversification, it's it's deferring those taxes and then hopefully eventually having them go away. Let's walk through this kind of like in a process. So here I am, I'm the potential 1031 candidate. I have a piece of ground, ground A. And I'm going like, you know, I want to defer taxes. And on top of that, I want to leave a high tax location and go to a low tax location. And so how far ahead of time do I need to reach out to you? Well, believe it or not, people will call me an hour before they close. You know, it's, it's not that dissimilar from the people that will call me after they close. You know, they're still going to get the name wrong, but we can handle those exchanges. You know, we call them rush exchanges because everyone's trying to rush to get the documents in. But as long as you haven't closed yet, you know, we can set it up. I would recommend, you know, probably when you're under contract for the property you're selling would be the best time. Typically, you know, time between contract and close is 30, 45 days. That's plenty of time for us to make sure that obviously the property qualifies, answer any outstanding issues that there may be in line via the 1031 and to get the the exchange set up properly. So, and then they've got to identify the destination property, correct? That's correct. So basically what happens in a 1031 and, and the way I like to explain it. So whenever I go in over any of these rules and restrictions and you think they're unfair or your listeners think they're unfair, I'm just the messenger. I just want to get that out there. <laughs> you mean uh, you didn't write the rules? <laughs> no, no. And, and I, the only way I can explain it is one, it's part of the code. So we just kind of have to deal with it. And two, you know, I think the IRS, they, they understand the importance of 1031s, but they also really enjoy their tax dollars. So they're not going to necessarily make it easy on the exchanger. But you're correct. The 1031 clock starts the day you close. So you and I are talking, you have a property under contract. It's going to close maybe 30 days from now. The first thing we need to do is really establish, does the property qualify? 
And that goes back to that year and a day rule. You know, if it's raw land, lack of personal use, if it's a, a property that's producing some type of income, are you taking depreciation? Are you reporting that rental income? You know, that's the first thing I like to do is establish, does this property qualify? And the second thing is to make sure that their potential tax liability is significantly higher than what our fee is. Now, you know, our fee, it does vary across the country, but typically it's around $1,000. That includes most of the time one sale and one purchase. And that's a flat fee. That's something we take out from the exchange account. Again, all consultations are complimentary. A lot of times, you know, I have clients that are selling a $100,000 property, but because they've owned it for so long, perhaps maybe that entire 100000 is taxable. And they may have a tax liability of somewhere around 20, 25%. So they're looking at a hit of maybe $25,000 if they were to strictly sell that property. You have other clients maybe that are selling for $5 million, but if they bought that property three years prior for $5.5, well, they don't have any capital gains, right? They have capital losses. So it's really important to establish what the taxable gain is. Now, I do throw in the caveat, and I want this to make sure it's kept in here. We never act as someone's CPA or tax advisor. You know, they need to talk with their CPA in terms of establishing what their tax liability is. You know, we yeah. give estimates. And this is not to be construed as investment advice, legal right. advice, CPA, right. tax That's advice. Right. Yeah, get your own I advisor. I yeah. clients right after this. I messed up in a major way. You're absolutely correct. We give estimates, right? We don't give specific legal or tax advice. But, you know, once it's established that the 1031 makes sense, again, it, it kind of goes down to the timing aspect. That's the number one reason an exchange will fail is someone's unable to find a quality investment property within the time restrictions. So again, you're under contract 30 days from now, the clock starts the day you close. Basically what happens is the closing is going to be like any other closing you've been a part of. Instead of you receiving the funds, they go to us to be held in your exchange account. And with IPX, the way we protect those accounts is with a $100 million fidelity bond, a $50 million corporate guarantee, 30 million errors and omissions. So again, that kind of goes back to why I can't do this on my own. I'm just not able to offer that bonding and insurance. So every account that's set up is segregated from any other exchanges we have going, meaning the investor will know exactly how much they're holding. They'll have their own assigned exchange number, their own assigned exchange coordinator. And again, we apply that bonding and insurance to protect those accounts. Now, once you're under the clock, it is kind of stressful. And so you have 180 calendar days, which again, starts the day you close to close on any replacement properties, the first 45 being your identification period. So again, I'll repeat that, 180 total days, calendar days, to close on any replacements, the first 45 being the identification period. Those two times run together. A property that is not identified in the first 45 days cannot be closed on via a 1031 exchange. So really you have 45 days, which begins the day you close, to at least find an adequate replacement property that you may want to close on. And in just a second, I'll address some of the identification rules. But again, it's very important to note, if a property is not identified by day 45, it cannot be closed upon via its 1031. Another real life call I had was a gentleman called, he had a substantially high tax liability and he had listed a certain number of properties. And he called on day 48 of his exchange and none of the properties he listed were no longer available. And so he asked what his options were. And frankly, he didn't have many options. You know, he had to hope one of those properties came back on the market 
or maybe he could buy at a premium from the new owner. You know, wait till the, oh, yeah. oh. the closing happens. Go directly to the new owner and say, "Well, I'll pay you what you know what you bought it for plus a hundred thousand or you know X mm-hmm. amount." So that's important to note. The number one reason an exchange will fail is lack of identification. You know, during that forty-five calendar days. So in terms of how you ID, we basically send an ID notice. You know, it can be through DocuSign. We do an e-signature process, which kind of streamlines the process or, you know, simple paper and pen. But all you have to do is, is put the property address, sign it, and send it back. Now, the property does need to be site-specific. So if you're listing raw land, we need a legal description or a parcel number. If you're listing apartments, we need those apartments specific apartment numbers or condo, the unit numbers. But besides that, all you have to do is list the property, sign it, and send it back. During those 45 days, you can change up your identification however many times you want. You know, day 10, you identify three properties. Day 11, two of those properties go off the market. Day 12, you could add in two more properties. You can switch it up again, however many times you want by following the same steps. But on day 45, whatever we last have as the identification are the only properties you can close on. So let's get to the identification rules. The most commonly used rule, the one that I think your listeners will use probably 90% of the time is the three property rule. And what that states is if you sell for a million dollars, you can identify three properties of any value. And again, this can occur anywhere in the U.S. So they could identify one property at you know 1.5, another at a million, and another at 900,000. And they can close on all three. They could close on just two or one. Again, another myth, people think if I sell one, the only thing I can buy is one property on the back end. Not the case. You can sell one, buy multiple properties. You can sell multiple and consolidate and buy one maybe bigger property. You can sell multiple and buy multiple. It, it really doesn't matter how many properties you buy. And so the three property rule is, is by far the most commonly used identification rule. And again, all you have to do is keep it at three, but it doesn't matter what valuations you have on the properties. Now, you can identify more than three, but when you do so, you have to be very careful of the basically the value of the properties you're looking at. So any amount of identification above three, the total value of those properties cannot exceed 200% of what you sold for. That's the 200% rule. So on a million-dollar so property, couldn't be more than $2 million if you had a bunch of them. That's correct. You would have to keep that the combined value of those properties within 200% of that million or $2 million. Now you can break those two rules, but now you're under a catch-all. It's called the 95% exception. Basically, in your scenario where you sell for a million, if you identified five properties for 500,000 each, well, we're breaking the three property rule and we're breaking the 200% because the five properties at 500,000 is 2.5 million. That exceeds 200% of that million dollar sales price. That person can still do an exchange. They're just going to have to close on 95% of the value of the properties they identified. So in real world, that's, that's all of the properties. Now I will say some of our clients do that exact thing. You know, maybe if they're buying from an individual owner in a package deal, you know, they're buying a package of properties, they might break the three property rule and the 200%. Most of the time, the, the DST, the Delaware statutory trust will break those first two, but because you're closing on that DST, you're closing on hundred percent of the properties identified. So that's kind of the basics in terms of the ID process. Now, in terms of the rules requiring someone to fully defer their taxes, and when I talk about the the taxes associated with the sale, there's really four types of taxes we're dealing with. The first is your federal. Um, So that's the the federal tax capital gains, and and that 
fluctuates between 15 to 20%, depending on other types of taxable income. The second tax is the Affordable Health Care Act tax. This is a surtax on net investment income. That was the surprise tax of last year. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's a 3.8% surtax on any amount in excess of $200,000 for single filers and $250,000 for married couples filing joint returns. So for your larger deals, that surtax is going to come into play. The third tax is state tax. And again, that depends on where that person files their tax returns. It can go as high as California at 13.3. It can go as low as Tennessee at 0%. The fourth tax, the final tax, we call the hidden tax, and that's the depreciation recapture tax. Now, depreciation is great while you own an investment or business use property, right? You're able to kind of offset that rental or passive income. But when you go to sell, it does hit you a couple of ways. The first thing it does is it lowers your adjusted basis, right? To to calculate our taxable gain, you basically take your sales price minus any closing costs minus your basis. Your basis is what you bought the property for. However, it can go up and down. It goes up when you make capital improvements. It goes down when you take depreciation. So again, when someone takes depreciation while they own it, they're able to take that offsetting deduction on their their income that they have coming in. When they go to sell, it does lower that adjusted basis. And there is this recapture tax at a 25% rate. So an example, if someone took 100,000 in depreciation over the years, this recapture tax would apply solely to that depreciation. And at 25% on $100,000, that would be an additional $25,000 tax. I specifically had a client mention that the reason he called me, the reason he wanted to do a 1031 was his last sale was pretty much a wash in terms of the income that he was getting from it because he didn't factor in the depreciation recapture. So those are the four taxes. Now, the good news is a 1031, it defers all four of those taxes. And again, the reason that is powerful to the investor, well, now they're not giving any money to the government and they're able to fully use their sale proceeds to buy bigger properties, newer properties with less maintenance costs, properties that will get them higher returns on investment. You know, real estate investors that use 1031 exchanges, they grow the real estate portfolio faster and they get higher returns. And it's quite simply because they're not giving any money to the IRS along the way. And so the rules governing how to fully defer, you have to kind of look at the sales price, the contract price. Unfortunately, a lot of my clients have the misconception that they think they can only reinvest their profits or they only need to reinvest their net proceeds, the cash portion, right? So I'll give you an example. Let's say we have someone that sells for a million dollars. They have $500,000 in debt on the property. We'll eliminate closing costs for simplicity. So day of closing, right, the first thing that gets paid off is the debt. The remaining amount, that's what would go to us as the qualified intermediary, that $500,000. That's what we'll be holding in the exchange account. Now, the rules state that to fully defer, they need to purchase equal or greater to that sales amount. So really, they have to find a property or properties that's combined value is a million dollars. Again, you can't just reinvest the profits. You can't just reinvest the cash. you got to buy equal or greater to the sales price. The second requirement is you reinvest all the sale proceeds. So the 500,000 that we're holding, it needs to be reinvested into the replacement of the property. And finally, the third requirement is to replace the debt. Now, for a lot of people, this might be confusing, but it's really quite simple. If you buy a property at a million dollars and you only have $500,000 in cash to facilitate that closing, well, how are you going to come up with the other 500,000? You're going to replace the debt. 
So debt can be replaced with either new debt, with outside cash or equity. So if someone has money they want to bring to the close, they don't have to buy a property with debt, even though they sold a property with debt on it. And then finally, you could do a combination of the two. You could bring some money to close and then replace the remainder with debt. So those are kind of the three main requirements. Purchase equal or greater to the sales price, reinvest all the sale proceeds, and then replace the debt. Now, for your listeners that maybe don't want to fully defer or don't want to buy a property of equal or greater, you know, they want to take some of the sale proceeds out. Does that mean their 1031 fails? No, it does not. We have clients all the time that will take a portion of their sale for themselves, and that is what is called boot. Now, in Nashville, I make the joke that boot is mentioned because Nashville has turned into the bachelorette capital of the world with all the brides-to-be walking down Broadway in their boots. Sometimes it gets a laugh. Most times it does not. But basically, (laughs) in 1031 world, boot means any amount after an exchange is completed that is still taxable. Meaning, as an investor, you can do what is called a partial exchange, where you defer some of your taxes, but you also have tax liability left over. So an example, that million dollar sales price, let's say the the basis in the property is 400,000. So initially they have a tactical gain of 600,000. They want to take 100,000 out at closing. Is it allowed? Yes, it is. So they take 100,000 out, the remainder goes to us. They follow the rest of the rules. They buy a property for 900,000. They use all the sale proceeds. They replace the debt. Of their initial 600,000 taxable gain, they've deferred 500 of that 600,000. The 100000 that's left over is that boot, and that amount would be taxable after the exchange is complete. So again, I think doing a partial exchange for many people is something they didn't know that they could do. A lot of my clients think, well, if I don't fully defer, that means my 1031 fails. Not the case. As long as you cover your initial basis, meaning you buy a property, you have to cover your initial basis from the property you sold, but every dollar after that, you begin to defer taxes. So in terms of is a partial exchange viable, it really comes down to a determination of what they're going to buy at, you know, what their basis is. Obviously, the lower the basis, the more wiggle room they have in terms of not fully deferring, but it certainly is an option. I, the thing that it sounds to me is within the rules, there's flexibility. And so if the client has a goal, they want to take and do something with part of the proceeds, they can. If they're trying to pass all of the proceeds, you know, they can too. So I think the solution for the listeners is come in with your goals in mind. And then once you have the goals in mind, you can take and start trying to design the 1031 effort to meet your goals. I would say our most savvy 1031 investors, they typically have already picked out their replacement properties prior to the close on their sale. And this, again, goes to maybe another myth out there is that when you're under contract or even when you're deciding maybe to list an investment or business use property, that's the time to start looking for replacement properties. Because one, you know the the clock is not a lot of time, right? 45 calendar days comes up in quite a hurry. You know, though, it starts the day you close. So the time between contract and close or when you list and close, that's additional time to start looking for replacement properties. There's no rule against being under contract for a replacement property prior to the close on the property you're selling. You know, a lot of people will sell in the morning, buy in the afternoon and complete their 1031 in one day. We call that a simultaneous exchange. I would say a decent amount, maybe close to 40 or 50% will complete their exchange within a few weeks time. Mm -hmm. And they're doing that because they're starting to look for the replacement property, you know, prior to that close. Yeah. Unfortunately, some people 
like to do things step by step. They like to sell their property first and then begin looking for the replacements. Uh, because of the timing restrictions in an exchange, that really is not the best option. So you're right. Have, coming in with a, a game plan, I think, is certainly important. You know, my my grandfather always used to say that used to say the most important uh, part in terms of painting a house is is the preparation. Right? You may you got to make sure you have your blue tape in line so that there's no smudges or anything, or, or you don't make any mistakes. So preparation is certainly key. Um, now, my role, again, is to advise on 1031 issues. I think that's where the financial advisor or their agent or broker would come into play. And it's kind of, as you said, a team effort in terms of satisfying what their financial goals are from a real estate uh, perspective. As we talk about this, you know, I think about various tools in your toolbox, mm-hmm. right? And for the folks that don't know, you know, I think this is an extraordinarily valuable tool and, you know, like I tell most folks, it's okay not, it's not okay not to know, it's okay not to do, you know, but right. you, you should know about it, rule it in or rule it out. You know, does it fit what you're trying to do? I really think agents and brokers, it should almost be a requirement that they notify at least of the possibility of a 1031. You know, mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many clients I have that just never have heard of it and they have to do their own research. Fortunately, you know, and again, that's why I give a lot of educational classes. And really, if you're the only agent in town, particularly if you're in the Southeast that has a basic understanding of 1031s and has an attorney that specializes in this type of uh, transaction, does this day in, day out, that, that would be a plug for myself, uh, Bob. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, you just set yourself apart from your competition, right? That's exactly yeah. correct. You know, as you go in and try to take and work in some of these larger dollar figures, it's unlikely one person is going to have all the skill sets in hand to do everything right. necessary. You know, and, and I think in the specialization space for people to understand, there are specialists like you that actually do this all the time. It's kind of like when you go to have brain surgery, you want it for the first time they ever did it, or you want a guy that does it all the time? And the answer is all the time. The cost of doing it, I think, is extremely competitive. I don't think the costs of doing a 1031 are egregious in any way, shape, or form. You know, the cost sometimes, a lot of people will say, well, you know, this local attorney, he's charging X amount and y'all charge this set fee. And it's kind of, in a way, you know, I never describe it like this, but in some ways it's, you get what you pay for. You know, there are attorneys that abuse the 1031 system. There are many cases where local attorney has stolen millions of dollars worth of clients exchange funds. Now, how are they able to accomplish this? Well, one, they're putting all the money into one account. You know, it might be separate from their, obviously their personal account, but no one knows where the funds are coming and going. You know, Fidelity National Financial is a publicly traded company. So if anyone wanted to do their due diligence, they could look through all of our financial records. The bonding and insurance, you know, secures that amount. And wire fraud, and I think when looking at your list of past podcasts, did you do a podcast on, on wire fraud or any types of cyber? We've done cybersecurity more than cybersecurity, once. yeah. Yeah. It's quite prevalent. You know, there was a uh, qualified intermediary, not IPX, in last year that was a victim of wire fraud and sent out a, a large amount of money to obviously uh, an individual that was not supposed to be sent to. And it's quite easy. You know, if someone has access to a password, they can literally copy and paste an email and just say, well, there's been a change in the wire instructions. Please send out accordingly. And if you send out those funds, you have about two hours to catch it or else it's gone. And ways we prevent that is obviously we 
any disbursement of funds, we require authorization from the exchanger. We only use numbers that we have on file that, that have been used in the past. We only use secure lines. You know, if there are any change in the wiring instructions at any point, that raises some serious red flags. There are a number of instances where our exchange coordinators have caught attempts at wire fraud. And, you know, I do want to point out that you're not just dealing with myself, you're dealing with the entire company at IPX 1031. You know, if there's anything I've never seen before, and, you know, at this point, I've come across pretty much almost everything you can, you can see, but I have, you know, my manager, she's an attorney based in Florida, licensed in Florida and New York. She's been doing this for over 15 plus years. You know, we have exchange coordinators. They're the ones that are really on the front lines in terms of setting up the documents, catching any mistakes. They know the 1031 rule book uh, as well as myself. They just don't like speaking in public, right? That's probably why they're not doing what I'm doing. And you have our entire company. So, you know, if I'm not available, you know, again, we operate from Hawaii time uh, all the way to Eastern time, you know, again, Throughout the entire business day, you're going to be able to contact someone within our organization and they're going to be able to assist in any 1031 related matter. That goes to another point. We don't just handle forward exchanges, uh, which kind of separates us. So there are other types of 1031s that I want to address. And one would be a reverse exchange and another is a built to suit or construction or improvement. It has a number of different names. How is our time looking? Do we have some time to kind of... You know, we've probably got about five more minutes, then we're we're good. Well, very quickly, the reverse exchange, if you have clients or investors that want to buy the replacement property first, you know, they find a property that they really like and and they want to acquire that. Well, unfortunately, at 1031, you have to basically sell and buy to third parties. So if you were to go on title to that replacement property, when you back sold the property, you're looking to defer your taxes on, you can't acquire something you already own, right? It has to be from a third party. And so to get around that, what is necessary is a reverse exchange. And in that scenario, IPX would go on title. We become the exchange accommodation title holder. We basically park that property, thereby keeping it eligible so that when someone does backsell, they we then convey 100% interest in the LLC that we created into the new taxpayer. So a reverse exchange is something not a lot of qualified intermediaries uh, we'll be able to, to to accomplish. And we have a division specifically out in Chicago that is able to assist in that. And so if anyone has any questions on, can you buy your replacement property first? The answer is yes. Another thing is that built to suit. If someone wants to sell their property and buy, you know, a basically a piece of property where they want to have improvements count towards the 1031. Well, unfortunately, if you were just to go on title, at that point, the exchange is complete. Any amount left over is considered boot. So to have the improvements count towards the 1031, you're probably going to guess this, we have to go on title. Mm-hmm. So in that scenario, again, we act as the exchange accommodation title holder. We wire out directly to the general contractor. And now because the exchanger is not officially on title, the improvements will count towards their 1031. So that's kind of a flyby of the reverse and built to suit. But basically, it is possible for your investor uh, listeners to buy a replacement property first and then back sell the property they're looking to defer their taxes on, as well as buy a property and make improvements to that property and have it count towards a 1031. And for lack of time, I will just say, yes, it is possible to buy your second home, vacation home, your dream home, 
my best advice would be to contact myself or a representative with IPX and we'll be able to kind of talk through those requirements, the rules and restrictions governing that. And with that being said, great segue into how do people find you? Absolutely. So the easiest way would be to call my direct line. And I will, I don't know if I should do this, but I'll give it out. It's 629-203-2725. So again, that's 629-203-2725. There's also a website, www.ipx1031.com backslash Hayes, H-A-Y-S. You know, everyone tries to put an E on my last name. It's the curse of the Hayes family. But my last name is spelled H-A-Y-S. So www.ipx1031.com backslash Hayes. And they'll be able to start an exchange online. So if someone doesn't want to talk to me in person, they can set up an exchange online. But if it's in my area, it will come to me directly. (laughs) You know, I, I think about you're generous enough to share your time and expertise you know, and, and I think for the listener, it sounds like complex, much like many things, if you've not done them a bunch of times. But if you right. take and get the right team on board, you can take and get the complexity managed. And the cost of doing it properly is not egregious as to having somebody that maybe doesn't do it frequently. Right. I think the security of your funds is incredibly important. Just trying to take and recover funds I mean, how many thousand dollar bills can you take and do before you get your money back? And the answer is a lot. Right. And so, you know, and for the listener out there, part of the process of doing this is one, I had a personal interest in the topic as well. I think for a lot of the business owners that we talk to on Business Leaders Podcast, it's another arrow in the quiver that right. I want to make sure that they're aware of or there's, they know that there's a resource that they can explore. So, Luke, I can't tell you how much I appreciate taking your time. We won't hold Alabama against you. I actually am an Alabama fan. Well, it's been a rough couple of seasons anyway. But as you said, to quickly recap, first item, 1031 has to be set up prior to the close. That's by far the most important thing. Second item, as a general rule, you need to have held the property as investment or business use for at least a year and a day. And then thirdly, yes, contact myself and we'll go over everything else. We'll make sure you're properly advised and, and make sure the 1031 is worthwhile. But I really do appreciate you having me on. I hope I didn't. We've kind of glossed over probably some questions because of sometimes when you get into this 1031 subject, I could go on for, for too much time. <laughs> I'm sure my fiance can certainly make note of that, but I, I certainly do appreciate it. And yes, as you said, this can be another quiver for your average investor, or really if you have a business use property, this is a way to kind of get out of that property and maybe defer the taxes by buying something that will help produce income. Well, Luke, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much.